Matua tama wairua tapu me te anahira pono and ihu koraiti. Um, tihe Māori ora. So I take hold of the spirit and I speak the words that are, that are given to me this morning and it's great to be here to be sharing some of this, uh, this story. And uh, timing is, is definitely an, an important part of um, the prophetic. It's definitely an important part of uh, why we're here and um, I guess we're all going to find out that this was an important part of our lives, having shared something on Orama, because um, important things happen here. Um, I think an example of um, the curious way that God works was perhaps our arrival here. Um, we jumped on the plane from uh, Hawke's Bay from Napier. We arrived in Auckland. Um, uh, we, we got the plane, well, we went, went to, the, uh, to, to, the, to the front counter and, and Jay had said, if you get there early, um, you might be able to move your, your flight from, uh, uh, from the six o'clock one to the four o'clock one. So I we handed over my details, our details, to the, to, the, to the person behind the counter and they said, well, we think we can get you on the plane. And he came back with it, he said, right, okay, quick, grab your bags. And, and away we get and we got on the plane and um, they took us to um, Claris. And we get to Claris and somebody said, oh, you're at the wrong here, you're at the wrong airport. And I'd rung ahead and said, um, you know, could you tell Jay that, um, that we're on our way and we'll be there at, from the early flight. Um, but Jay was already on his way. So we'd gone to Claris, and the thing was, well, that's an hour flight away, and then the guy said, well, actually, I've got to go over there and deliver the bread, so jump on this plane, and we'll fly you across to, um, to Old Kiwi. So we get off the plane, and as soon as we get off the plane, there's, there's uh, Norm, who, who lives just around the corner there. Norm knows Paula and I and, uh, from, from way back. I never met Jay. We've spoken to Jay before. And if, we, if it had been five minutes late, Jay would have gone, Norm would have gone, and we would have been stuck at the airport. <laughs> so to me, in that you know, five minutes out of all of that, you know, that we, we could have missed out completely. But God's timing is, is just perfect. And I have to say another thing, too, is that um, there's, there's a movie that, uh, that, that I've seen over the years that I love because of its imagery, because of its cultural challenge, because of its, um, its world view. Um, and you can put it on without even listening to the music, and it's called Baraka. And just before I left, I'd been watching it. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's an obscure movie, for goodness sake. It's not something that you see in the, even in the DVD shops. And, and just before I came away, I'd paid for it on Trade Me. I thought, I want to have that in my collection. I walked out of our room the other day, and there's Jay standing there with a copy of Baraka <laughs> in his hand. And I'm just going, what is this? is just so weird. But I love stuff like that because, you know, I, I never understand it fully. But it should. Sell it to you, no, no, I already had mine. Oh, you wanted? Oh, because it's yours. <laughs> well, there's another one. You know, Jay's parents knew my parents back in Fielding way long ago. You know, ancient times when when the Holy Spirit. <laughs> When, when, when moving in the Holy Spirit was really a controversial thing. You know, my dad got into trouble for joining the full gospel businessmen's movement. He got into trouble for telling people that, he, that the phantom pain from the, uh, from the kidney that he'd lost as a young man, you know, and he'd been prayed for and it had gone. He got called down to talk to the bishop in Wellington. What's all this business about? You've got to stop talking about this. And, and Jay's parents were there during that period. They know all of this. So this is part of... Of, of our Christian history, but like I say, the, the Baraka 
thing. And all I could think of is this is God's high five, you know. There is an aligning of things sometimes. And they don't necessarily mean anything. They don't mean, ooh, spooky stuff's going to happen. It just means God's there, stuff's lining up. And, you know, you might, you might never understand what it meant. But throughout my life, little things like that have happened. You know, it just makes me think, wow, this God I serve is incredible. And I'm just going to waffle on a little bit here before we get into the presentation. I remember once... I got involved in a radio station down in Wellington, which was the first Christian radio station, um, what we called Harbour, Harbour Radio or something, and, and I was the program manager, and um, I had a dream just before I left that uh, I would be picking up a hitchhiker, and I don't normally pick up hitchhikers, it's not something I, I, I think about much, and I'm not even sure what the story means, but it was a real, a real buzz for me. So I forgot about that promptly, and then I'm driving off to Wellington, and um, just outside of, of Palmerston North, I, I look in my rear vision mirror and there's a guy standing on the side of the road. And the word is, there he is. And I go, oh, okay. So I pulled over, backed up, the guy gets in, and um, we drive all the way to Levin, and there's not much conversation. And I dropped him off, and I went off to see a friend of mine who was going to go down and work for this radio station as well. And um, I said to the guy as I dropped him off, I said, if you're still there, when I come back, I'll pick you up. And I'd forgotten about him. I was having a good old chat with my mate, and then I'm driving outside of Levin, and there he is in the window. <laughs> oh, for goodness me. So I pull over, and um, he comes running up to me, and he says, guess what? You'll never guess what. And I said, what's that? And I hadn't told him much about me or anything. He'd been standing on the side of the road. A piece of paper had blown along. It was the Full Gospel Businessman's um, Voice magazine with my testimony in it. He'd sat on the side of the road and read my testimony. <laughs> well, so, I mean, that just blew me away. So, you know, and then, and then he got in the car and he told me that, me that he'd run away from home, that he was gay, he thought he was anyway. He's going off down to Wellington to join the gay community. He had a Bible, though, but it was a Mormon Bible. And I said, no, don't read that one. And, and of course, the rest of it was me telling him the story. But um, so for what that's worth, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. And, and I love it. And, and, and the second part of what I want to start talking about tomorrow really is shifts happen. Now... I, I just love that, I, you know, I, I, remember going to, <laughs> I remember going to parachute once and, and a woman had a t-shirt on and I, I said, grace happens. And I said to her, well, that's better than the other one, don't, isn't it? And she said, what do you mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, th I think we all carry something, you know. Um, some of us threw some of those things away this morning when we went down... To the, to the wharf and I think it's great to have a, a symbolic a divesting of stuff and I love the idea that you know that we have treasure in earthen vessels and the whole idea of the wakahuia um, being us you know that, that, that it's not all about chiefs and tohungas and, and, and prime ministers and special people we're all called to be um, prophets, uh, princes, kings whatever it is in God's kingdom there's a different order in, in God's kingdom, and, and I like the idea that, um, that uh, sometimes you need to get rid of the old in order to have the new come in, and sometimes I think we get flooded with the old, and there's no room for the new. This is an age of information overload, but I still think that genetically or even spiritually we all carry something, whether it's 
something that our great-grandfathers had. You know, this is part of destiny and purpose and, and life, that life is connected, that there is a purpose, there is a reason, and that things continue to unfold in us. You know, we stand on the, force, uh, we stand on the, on the shoulders of our ancestors. We're carrying something, and, and that's the adventure of life, isn't it, to find out what are, what are we carrying? What are we here to impart? What are we here to contribute? And, and in the body of Christ, we're part of this amazing team and sometimes it's just exciting to find team members that you relate to. You don't get on with everybody. Sometimes, you know, you, you, I, I remember, um, we'll get to Ratna. Uh, <laughs> I remember going to house groups, you know, when you're first enthusiastic and you want to be right in there going to, to, to Wednesday night house groups and Sunday morning church services and Sunday night church services and study groups and all the rest of it. And sometimes you find yourself hanging out with people that you don't have an awful lot in common with other than the Holy Spirit. I mean, that changes it. But when you do find people that you relate to, when you do find people that you just get this kind of heart thing happening, it's exciting because you know that you're part of a team who are doing things that you know are even invisible. You might, you might not see the evidence of that for some, some years. And uh, This is a, a poem. I'm going to start off with a poem called Time Travel. This is the climax of the generations. We are the seeds our forefathers planted. Across the decades, we're haunted. Time travel by DNA. The good and the bad of mum and dad and their parents before. My children, their children, the whole mystery tour. Genealogy, whakapapa, bloodlines, true blue. The Heemskirk, the endeavour. Where do I come from? What's it to you? Imprints in history there to remind. Familiar impressions in space and time. What have you inherited? What will you leave behind? Standing in the shadows, tomorrow cast, on the shoulders of the past, destined to build a future, but will it last? The wheels of consequence in hot pursuit, it's judgment day all too soon, who we are weighs heavily on our shoulders, sins of the forefathers rattle our cages, this is the harvest of the ages. Genetic messengers, potential stars, the old man and the child in all of us. Down the decades we're haunted, we are the seeds our forefathers planted. Time travel by DNA. Now I want to uh, start talking, uh, perhaps we're, we're, we're getting to Ratna. Uh, this old warrior um, made this statement that impressed me recently and um, Certainly in the English heritage of things, this makes sense, and we'll, we're about to move into the Māori heritage of things. One of the signs of a great society is the diligence with which it passes culture from one generation to the next. This culture is the embodiment of everything the people of that society hold dear. Its religious faith, its heroes. When one generation no longer ex esteems its own heritage, and fails to pass the torch to its children, it is saying in essence that the very foundational principles and experiences that make the society what it is are no longer valid. This leaves that generation without any sense of definition or direction, making them the fulfillment of Marx's dictum, a people without a heritage are easily persuaded. That's Winston Churchill. But it makes sense to me. 
and, and this is what we're talking about, is that broken, there are broken threads in our history that have allowed us to come to this point in time believing what we do about the missionaries, believing what we do about the Maori, believing what we do about the future, and I think there are some pieces to the puzzle that are missing, and they're important pieces to the puzzle. For example, we, we, we're fascinated with the Treaty of Waitangi, or bored with it, because it keeps coming around and it seems to be just another great land grab. But if you balance it with the Bible, because they both came into this country around about the same time, you start to see that the treaty is an entirely different piece of documentation than we can ever imagine that it was. It's out of balance. We've missed the balancing point of it. We've missed the God part of the story. And it's 170 years ago that the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in New Zealand this year. So it's an interesting, interesting point in time. All right, well, we may as well. Now, what I'm going to do is, uh, this is a presentation that's probably going to last for about 25 minutes. Can you put up with that? Can you put up with me reading for, for, for 25? I'm a writer, and I want to get it right, but this is a compressed route in a story with a, with a twist, if you like. And um, the, the books that I've written, this one here, with this huge tome here, um, Ratana Revisited, an Unfinished Story, uh, was published in 2006, and um, I never thought it would get published. There's 20 years in there, and that was just essentially because I had so many friends who had some involvement with the Ratana movement. Um, they could tell me bits and pieces of, of their history, little bits and pieces of their, what their grandfathers or their aunties or, or whatever knew about the story. It was fascinating enough to me to hear that uh, Ratana um, had asked through a revelation um, from God to, for, for unity of the Māori people and for that focus to be on one God. And that was at the time I thought uh, an imperative message. This country needed to hear this message. This, um, he, he, he'd been touched by the Holy Spirit and given this huge commission and there was evidence for what he'd done. He was healing people. This is extraordinary. Why didn't I know more? Why didn't these people whose families were intimately involved with the Ratna movement know more about their own heritage? And this question came more and more, tell me more, tell me more. And it was a very, very difficult journey to get that information, but it, it came about in a miraculous way. I, every time I gave up, something would happen. Somebody would offer me another piece of information, somebody would translate something, I'd get a letter from Australia or an email from some other part of the world, can you tell me more about my, um, the, the faith that my parents were in or whatever. So 2006, that, that was published, um, and um, last year, Routner the Prophet. So I've done a bit of research, the Routner movement still doesn't like me particularly because I exposed this, because I released the story, but I think secretly they're glad that I did. But there's a lot of protocol there and a lot of hurt and a lot of history. And really, I think this is for the healing of the nation that we, that we hear the Routner story because he brings together threads from the past that, that have been lost, that have been broken, and helps us to make sense of where we are today. So if we can kick off that, uh, that slide presentation. Um, Ratana the prophet, Matewa, the sign of the broken watch. Now the words Matewa, is it simply see you later as the TV presenter says when she signs off or does the context give us a more cosmic flavouring? Perhaps we'll wait and see is a more appropriate rendering. Or better still, there's a right time and a space for everything. 
It's a term I came to enjoy while researching and writing about the life of Tahupotiki Wirimuratana. He used it a lot. It seems he has a particular kinship with time, a perceptive intuition, if you like. Often when people were fussing and debating over critical issues, he would remain quietly in the background, waiting for wise words to settle the matter. Like a good musician, his timing was great. Perhaps Ecclesiastes 3 hits it on the nail. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Another scriptural intangible might be the often flippantly quoted, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Both challenge our perceptions of time. I think we've all experienced the attractive drawing power when curiosity about a previously unknown subject creates a heightened consciousness, and by synchronous circumstances, serendipity or coincidences, we get a surreal education. This was my experience during 20 years researching and writing Ratana Revisited for Reed in 2006 and the less athletic Ratana the Prophet for Penguin in 2009. Of course the term synchronicity brings me to the second part of my subject and my rather unorthodox approach to history which I admit has been driven by, the request, by, by, by the, a request for a title for a speech. So the title Matewa, the sign of the broken watch came first and I was forced to kind of follow through and, and work that one out. So synchronicity in effect means alongside time or relating to parallel but unrelated events that produce a sense of moment or meaning beyond them both. Um, something symbolic or representational that has the hallmarks of the spiritual is what you get. So in September I received uh, an email from Debbie Martin, the curator of the 20th Century New Zealand History Exhibition to be held at Te Papa um, from October this year. Um, I'm not supposed to tell you too much about that because once I got excited about it, she said, oh, don't tell anybody. Uh, I shouldn't have actually told you that, but I have, so, um, okay. So that, that's coming up, and, and one of the storylines she's developing is uh, the Rat and the Labour Alliance, um, and particularly the symbolic objects that um, uh, Ratana gave to Michael Joseph Savage in 1936. Among the Savage memorabilia placed in glass cases inside his ma mausoleum were documents, uh, personal effects, gifts, Māori artefacts, and among them, a broken watch. Now Debbie was eager to learn whether this could be the broken watch given by T.W. Ratana to Michael Joseph Savage in April 1936. She wanted my advice. The meeting between Mickey Savage and Ratana took place in Parliament buildings on the 22nd of April 1936. In a symbolic act, Ratana placed before Savage a waka or canoe, which, it, which was actually a kumara, with three Huia feathers in it. The feathers of the extinct bird having been destroyed by introduced predators were symbolic of the heritage of the Māori. The kumara represented the land and what had been taken from Māori so they could no longer plant and grow their food. Next he produced a greenstone tiki. Rautner said this, re this represents the power, the richness and nobility of the Māori people which I place in your hands. Yes, Greenstone represents the power and authority of the Māori people, which in this day and age has been lost to them through European laws. Ratana then handed Savage his grandfather's broken gold watch and chain. Taratana had been a loyal government follower, but as it happens, this uh, tiwai te or watch has no glass. 
my ancestor had no money uh, to replace the glass, and it so happens I haven't any money either to replace the glass. I give these objects into your hands. Ratner also presented Savage with the moon and star emblem of the Ratner movement, which was symbolic of the 40,000 people who had signed Ratner's covenant, seeking to have the promises of the Treaty of Waitangi honoured. I hand this over to your safekeeping and care, that you may be their father in justice and in physical works. He added, may you never forget your responsibilities to the Māori people, for when you forget this, your government will fail. Shining a light on the life and times of the man Ratana, whose name incidentally translates to Lantern, has been a great privilege. Ratana was a reluctant prophet. If you could step back and get a God's eye view of history, you might see the roads converging on his time and space. He came to prominence in the two decades between the world wars, in a location that sat between the major tribes of the Lower North Island and he inherited the mantle of both the Kotahitanga political movement and the Maramatanga spiritual movement. Moving along one of those roads is Tikuti, whose Old Testament experience saw him railing against the injustices and then rampaging across the country shortly after the land wars. In his New Testament phase, Tikuti moved from law to grace. He was following a dream. He was looking for a successor to the great Māori prophetic lineage, someone who could unite the people and bring them into a new spirituality based around the one God of Christianity. At the mouth of the Whanganui River in January 1893, Tukoti told a local Ngāti Apa elder, the promised one would come from beneath his armpit. He stated, a garden of many flowers will come forth from out of the mouth of the Whanganui River and its fragrance will be dispersed throughout the four winds of the country. Later that year, just before he died, Tukuti elaborated on the long-standing prophecy about certain stars signifying the rise of the next great Māori leader. From Katikati to Cape Runaway, there will be one child. If he arrives within six years, there will be great tribulation. If his advent does not take place in that time, in 26 years, he will arise from the west and unite the people. Rangatiki chief Tikiri and Wairarapa prophet Patangaroa had both prophesied the coming of a new movement to unite the Māori people. Before his death, Tikiri erected a wooden cross on Tikanga, a distinctly carved house beside the Rangatiki River, loco located in Ngāti Raukawa territory, close to the borders of Rangatani and Ngāti Apa. Tikiri said the person the cross fell on would continue his prophetic tradition. When the cross toppled, it struck Atareta Miri Rikiriki Kawana Ropiha. She'd been raised by the Ratana or Nahina family, as they were known then. Later in life, she was recognised as a prophetess with a healing gift, based at Pariwanui Marae. She had founded a non-denominational church, Tihahi Oti Wairuatapu, the Church of the Holy Spirit. Her, mo her movement was based on Christian scriptures and principles, with a strong emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Māori under one God, and the importance of the Treaty of Waitangi. She had prophesied, the time is near when a young man will rise in my place. When he comes, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. When he comes, the true and the false will never survive together, neither with righteous and the unrighteous, nor doctrines that, of God, that are of God and the doctrines of man and the devil. 
Miri Riki Riki was impressed by the intuition of Ratna Nahina, who believed his grandson, Tahupotiki Wirumu Ratana, was destined for much higher things than labouring on the farm and adding to the profits of the local tavern. Events confirming her choice would occur just 26 years after Tikoti's very specific prophecy. A series of challenging incidents kept drawing Ratner away from the pub in his role as a champion wheat stacker and bookie, a sense that destiny was overshadowing him. On the afternoon of November the 8th, 1918, three days before the end of the First World War, Ratner was standing on the veranda of his farmhouse when he saw a cloud coming toward him from the ocean. It was dark on the outside, but the centre was pure white, and at the back, a bright glowing colour like a flame. When it was directly over him, it broke open, and he was overwhelmed by its presence. It was then that he saw highways, roads and pathways from all over the world leading to his house. As if in a trance, he walked into the kitchen, jumped onto the table and exclaimed, Peace be unto you all, for I am the Holy Spirit that speaks unto you all. Straighten yourselves, repent. His daughter Martha ran to get the family Bible, but her father explained that his message was in the Bible and he threw the book on the mantelpiece. In doing so, an old clock belonging to his grandfather fell and broke on the stone hearth. There was concern at the damage, but he responded, the time has come for the clock to finish its work, and that everything that was in the clock was in his heart. He said, if you wish, this clock will ring at five o'clock, and then he threw the pieces in the fire. The story, according to his own words, is that a Pākehā visitor quickly retrieved the pieces out of the fireplace, and then it was sitting on the, when it was sitting on the hearth again, it rang on the fifth hour. The timing was perfect. Two days after his vision, Ratna began moving everything out of the house. All the furniture, the food and ornaments, until all that was left was a large pile of clothes on the bare floor in one room. He gave his immediate family water, and took them on a long walk across the rugged landscape of the Ratna farm throughout the night. They must have thought he was crazy. The next day, Ratna's family moved in with a neighbour while he continued his cleansing process, and then he sent word to his mother and family to leave the township of Patia, as a voice had told him that a disaster was about to strike if they remained. His mother and nephew followed his advice. Those who did not died within days including most of those who owned the clothing that he had piled up on the floor of the now barren family home. The Spanish flu spread like a, flay, a plague in two virulent waves, leaving about 6,700 New Zealanders dead. The mate urata, or death cold, claimed almost a thousand Māori lives. Ratna had a slight attack, but his family suffered severely. Only his two sisters remained among the 21 grandchildren of Ratna Nahina, leaving Wirumu Ratna the sole heir to the family farm. Again, the timing was perfect. Over the succeeding weeks, Ratna had a number of visions, including a pivotal message that was to further shape his mission. The Holy Spirit spoke to him, explaining that he had been called to unite the Māori people under Ihoa or Namanu or Jehovah of the multitudes, or the thousands. His calling was to heal the people and turn them for their, from their fears and superstitions. From 1920 onwards, people flocked to the Ratna family farm seeking prayer and guidance. He told them to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he prayed in the name of Jesus. 
He never laid hands on anyone. Over time, thousands were healed, and the crutches, walking sticks, glasses, wheelchairs, and other items, tapu objects included, surrendered by those who were making a Christian commitment, piled up and were eventually stored away in the jailhouse or the Fori Māori building. While touring the country, lifting curses, healing people, and encouraging unity under one God, Rautner also conducted thorough research into the injustices and breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi. He gathered up signatures from two-thirds of Māoridom, and when the New Zealand government rejected his petition, he took it to the top. In 1924, Rautner took a party of 40 musicians and elders to the United Kingdom, to Europe and to Japan, ostensibly to have the treaty acknowledged by the Crown and the British Parliament. Here too he was rejected. Again he found himself slipping into an uncanny mode of knowing. On the 17th of May 1924, Rautner and his party were looking around Westminster Abbey and as they crossed Westminster Bridge, Rautner stopped in the middle and proclaimed, as I stand on this bridge and look all around me, I tell you all, the angel of death will visit this place. Not a stone shall stand upon a stone, and the inhabitants of these houses will live under the ground. He is also reported to have said, when all your castles or stone houses are destroyed in time to come, then will the carpenters, the blacksmiths and the shoemakers be in power, and I will be in government. Some say, in describing the destruction of the stone buildings and referring to Tafio's prophecies, Rautner foresaw the Luftwaffe bombing London, which reduced the buildings around Westminster to rubble and, the, and subsequently the election of the Labour governments in both England and in New Zealand. Rautner, dejected and with a broken heart, took his people to the final part of their journey, to Japan. On the way, he prophesied he would reveal he would reveal hidden things to the Japanese people after which a great war or blaze would come. The prophecies made in Japan, the official opening of the Ratna Temple by Bishop Juji Nakada in 1927, his provision of a large clock mechanism, this is Juji Nakada's provision of a large clock mechanism for the lawn in front of the building, the, the Ratna Temple, and other stories relating to the Japanese connection are worthy of a book on their own. You can ask me some questions about those later and I'll see if I can remember them. Ratna didn't want to form a separate church. And he frequently urged his people to stay within their own denominations. After initially fully supporting his he healing ministry, the Catholics and Anglicans and other denominations were pressuring him um, to commit, and all the while pinpricking about his theology. In the end, fed up with the debate and fearing that the divisions would split his people, he agreed to form a church and a hugely uh, rich repository of Christ Christian symbolism, the Ratana Temple. Now, is that moving around? What we've got here is the inside of the Fori um, Māori, or the boogie house, as they call it down there, the jailhouse, where um, all the walking sticks and the glasses and everything there, I mean, um, that's, uh, there's not a lot left in there now. They've, unfortunately, there's been attempts to try and have that um, uh, building restored. Um, but there were holes in the, in, the, in, the, in the roof and the water dripped through and old documents got saturated and uh, unfortunately we've lost a lot that was in there and there's some extraordinary stuff 
in that uh, Whare Māori today. So maybe we just need to move that along a bit. Where's that little pushy button thing there? Well, you, you just... You, oh, yeah, or just... Because yeah, I had it. Well, this, is, this is Bishop Ra, Ratna here in the Japanese uh, traditional uniform form and uh, Bishop Juji Nakata wearing the Māori hui. No, I think it's a kiwi feather cloak, that one. But this was a symbolic marriage between uh, New Zealand and Japan, which was very much misunderstood later on because, of course, we, we ended up in, in the war situation with Japan and uh, Ratna was considered to be, you know, perhaps he was a, a, some secret alliance and the Japanese were coming in their submarines to liberate the Māori. And that, the people seriously thought this. Later on, documents were discovered that, you know, the, the, the uh, Secret Service was looking into this uh, and they would go out to Ratna Power looking to see if there were insurgents or Japanese hidden out there. But uh, it's an incredible story. And let me tell you about uh, Bishop Juji Nakada. He, uh, does anybody know Oswald Chambers? Oswald Chambers, uh, his, his, my... My utmost for your highest. My utmost for your highest. A great book. Uh, Oswald Chambers was one of the, um, uh, what do you call it, for, for the New Zealand troops during the First World chaplain. War. He was a chaplain. To the, but he also founded, with uh, Juji Nakata, the uh, Oriental Mission Society. So the, between the two of them, I mean, Japan had not had Christianity for about 400 years. They, the Christians were kicked out. They were out, you know, <laughs> like the snakes out of Ireland. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Um, but uh, so he was part of bringing back Christianity to Japan and a, a lot of other nations. And um, uh, when Ratna got stuck in Japan, they hosted him at the music college there. So w we can tell you a bit more about that. All right. Um, let me take you to. Uh, all right. So what's what's happened with with Ratna? He he's he's founded a church on Christian principles. All the, all the denominations love this because he's going around the country healing people, they want to be part of it, but after a while it's like uh, Māori start not going to the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian, they're going to Ratna Par to see the miracles, they're going to see the miracle man. And they're starting to get a bit concerned, uh, there's not as much in the plate these days as there used to be. So they're a bit concerned here and they're saying, well, why don't you all join our church? No, no, come and join our church. So there's all of this going on and saying, well, hang on, hang on. He's, he's talking about uh, Now, these holy angels. Has he suddenly added them to the Godhead? Oh, he can't talk about the angels as much as he's talking about the angels. Um, and Ratna would... The, the thing was that with the, with the angels, um, as Ratna went... This, this is Māori fears and superstitions and probably genuine concerns as well. As Ratna went out of his tribal area, and he was pan-tribal, the, the people were concerned that he might come under attack, spiritual attack or some other kind of attack, and he would say, never mind, the angels are going with me. So, you know, and, and as we know, you know the, the whole angelic host is, is a very biblical thing. You know, it's right through the Bible. It's an amazing thing. We prob there's probably angels around us now. I don't want to make a big thing about it and expect a hui, a feather, or an angel. You know, people go too far, but that, that was the reason for it. But th this became something that they were suspicious of. All right, this is where we're going to now. This is Wairarapa. This is the monument outside uh, the meeting house at Te Ori Ori Marae. Let me tell you about that. 
On the 14th of April 1928, 144 people from Ratnapar made the journey to Te Uriuri Marae at Masterton to expose the Māori stone placed in the meeting house on the 16th of March 1881 by the prophet Patangaroa. Now you remember that Patangaroa and Tikiri were the original prophets who had prophesied that somebody would come before Ratna even came to prominence. And that led to uh, Miririkiriki, um, Ratna's auntie, uh, prophesying over Ratna and over his two children, Tiarepa and Omeka. So it, it's a very complex story. I'm going to try and keep it simple. Okay, the visit was, was in response um, to a petition signed by 500 people from uh, Kahununu Iwi. I didn't get that. Did I get that right, Brad? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? I, yeah, I, I stumble over it. It's the trouble sometimes you find a word, you stumble over it once, you always keep stumbling until you get it. It hasn't got in yet, but I apologise for, for getting it wrong, Brad. Um, several priests had died in the attempt to remove the stone, and children who had touched the marble statue, which we saw before above it, had also died or become ill. Te Patangaroa and Tohunga and Rangatiki prophet and master carver Tikiri had planned to build a large carved house, but after an argument, Tikiri had withdrawn. When, he, uh, when the building was completed, Patangaroa was at the height of his influence and had recently converted to Christianity. Before he died, he made predictions about the coming of a new Māori church. There is a religious denomination coming for us. Perhaps it will come from here. Perhaps it will come from there. Secondly, let the churches into the house. There will be a time when a religion will emerge for you and I, the Māori people. He predicted a number of signs over the next 40 years would inform Wairarapa Māori when this would be. Over the years, several movements claimed the prophecy pointed to them. But it was to this location, 47 years later, that Ratna was called. Once the descendants of Patangaroa were in complete agreement about the removal of the stone and the spiritual cleansing, Ratna confirmed that this was one of the most powerful curses in the country. He declared that he had come to this place with the purpose of uniting the fish, te ika a Maui, as there were representatives from all parts of the country present. It has been nine years now since I have called for the whole country to unite under the protection of Ihoa or Numano. Yet there are some of you who still remain aloof, outside, watching this revelation with curiosity, said Ratna. He said to the elders, having previously had a strong foundation uh, based in Jehovah, that they had added their own mixture of sorcery and their faith had become defiled. He challenged the priests and sorcerers and intellectuals who twisted or dismissed the truths of Jehovah and urged the people to come together in one waka so that they may, in unity, start paddling towards a quick recovery. Inside the meeting house, Ratner and a number of young men lifted the marble statue and carried it outside. Then he began soaring through the floorboards where the statue had stood. When he reached in to lift up a large glass bottle sealed with wax, it disintegrated, leaving behind a sheepskin with writing on it, coins and the remains of three skeletons. The writing on the folded sheepskin had faded, but underneath it he found what he came for, a 100-pound greenstone slab that was lifted up through the hole in the floor. And that's uh, now at Ratnapa in Te Whare Māori. As soon as he began to touch the objects, a heaviness came over him, so he prayed for extra strength and protection. 
The three skeletal remains, according to Rautner, had been placed there as food for the punamu or greenstone. And the karakia of the elders of the time, that, through that, they had placed a powerful force on it which had backfired on all of Patangaroa's descendants. It is said that Rautner slept for 15 hours after this ordeal, but his actions in removing the stone increased his mana in the eyes of the Wairarapa Māori, and many joined his movement. The statue, which was moved outside, is still there today, but now has a plaque commemorating Rautner's success at removing the stone and the curse. Now, recently I had the privilege of um, having a conversation with uh, one of the direct descendants of Patangaroa. Regan Patangaroa is a highly successful civil engineer. He's been involved in reconstruction projects um, in uh, Banda Aceh, in uh, Samoa, and Pakistan. He's very good at uh, building stabilising and he's, got his, he's got his own ideas about how to do this and they're really recognised as a, a bit of a world breakthrough and he's, he's a very humanitarian focused guy. I just did a profile for him for engineering, on him for Engineering Magazine. But um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, when the Ratna Temple um, was falling into disrepair long after Rautner's uh, death in the, in the 1980s. It was, it was a bit of a mess and people were worried that it was going to fall down or that it might, um, you know, the next earthquake might damage it. And uh, Fletcher Construction had put in a million dollar quote. They, were, they, they would fix it and they would, they would do this whole big surround process of, you know, reconcreting and whatever and it would be pretty ugly but, you know, it would save the building. And for some reason he, he, he got wind of this and heard about it and um, offered to come and have a look and he figured out a different way of doing it without affecting the outside. All he thought was that, that it was actually a very sturdy temple even though it was built in 1926-27 and even at that time people said oh a strong wind and that'll come down but it didn't and he said well no all you need is some suspension you know a bit of extra suspension here and, and he's got this principle so he sorted all out and it was only then that he discovered the relationship between his family and Ratna and he, he began to see that as um, that he was able to pay back um, with, through this effort uh, to the Ratna people he saved them hundreds of thousands of dollars which was then able to be used for restoring other buildings out there so um, that, that was really quite neat to, um, uh, to talk to him and about those links there. Um, so really, in a, in a way, the hands of time had ticked around again. Um, perfect timing, matewa. I mean, one of the things that, 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 that puzzled me, you know, because Ratna was saying to all of these people at Te Uri Marae and to Patangaroa's descendants, you know, this, this superstitious nonsense, this witchcraft, this stuff you've been involved in, has really got your descendants into a lot of trouble. You know, it's kind of backfired. You were given the gospel. It was brought to your territory, but you kind of tainted it. You got it really messed up here. And I went onto a blog and I had a look and there was some people from Masterton there saying, oh, you realise that uh, Patangaroa's three-legged dog is still seen wandering around here from time to time. And, you know, the people who see him, they're going to die. You know, it's like this curse is still around. And then somebody said, yeah, and I hear all that stuff down at Routon there. You know, we should go and get that back, eh, that stone there. And it's like, missed the point entirely. Missed the point, you know. And I, and I think, you know, we have, because these stories aren't told, because we're not aware of this, we risk missing the point. One of the names given to Routon is Huruhirima Hau, or the New Jerusalem, the Promised Land. As you turn off the main highway between uh, Palmerston North and Whanganui toward the tiny village, there's a dip in the road which is known as Moana Whero, 
or the Red Sea. In other words, you have to go through the Red Sea to get to the promised land. The hill as you head down into the first gully from the turn off to Route Napara is known as Manga Oriwa or the Mount of Olives. And on the 11th of November 1936, Rautner was speaking to the Murihu or the scattered uh, people who, who, who were living at uh, Rautner at the time about the history of the farming scheme that he'd organised and he suddenly stopped and went into that prophetic mode. You have all heard and are familiar with the word that says night time has passed. The new break of dawn draws near. There is a day unfolding when you will see two towers standing on the Mount of Olives and at that time you will see woman rising at the head of the Labour Party who will be Prime Minister. And then you will know that you are at the doorway, not nearing it, but actually at the doorway. Now this, 1936, talking about 2000, talking about the Labour Party, woman Prime Minister. Incredible. Two towers. What on earth is that about? Well, if you go to Rautnapar today, there's a Vodafone tower in that paddock, <laughs> and there's a telecom tower in that paddock <laughs> on either side of where he was giving that prophecy. Okay. I, c I can't tell you what that means, but there's something eerily accurate about that and certainly about the times that we're in you know that somebody would be able to project that a man of God anointed by the Holy Spirit would be able to project through time and give a pointer that something important happened at the turn of the century and maybe it's a bit like the turning of the tide that we talked about the other day is that while it still feels like the tide's going out we might be at that turbulent point where you know the that was the point of the turning of the tide. It's coming back the other way. In fact, while we were down the front this morning, I was amazed how quickly that tide was coming. We go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> Wet feet. All right. In Ratner's pan-tribal uh, pan political model, his body was split into Nakwata Ifa, or the four quarters for parliamentary representation. But these regions also had great spiritual significance. Now, how, how are we going for time? Are we, what, t what time do we break for? You know, it's, it's break time. No, I can break there because we're moving into politics now. Oh, sweet. Yes, please.